follow Jesus, the first thing that's going to happen in your life is you're going to experience the love of God. You can't follow Jesus very long before you realize that the God of the universe actually loves you. That the God of the universe took his son. You're going to bump into what we call the gospel, the good news. Is that we've all messed up. We've all fallen short of what God created us to be. But the good news is God found a way to reconcile us back to himself. And the only explanation you can come up with that God, the God of the universe, who doesn't need anything, would take his own precious son, his only begotten son, and put him on the cross in our place so that we could be reconciled. The only explanation you can come up with that is that God has chosen to love each one of us. And so you can't follow Jesus for very long before you begin to realize and before you begin to experience the reality of the love of God. The second thing that's going to happen to you if you follow Jesus and take him up on this invitation and you're teachable is that you're going to begin to embrace the truth of God. If you start hanging around Jesus, you're going to realize that his wisdom is so far superior to the wisdom of this world. His way of seeing the world, his worldview is so superior to the worldview that you came into the world with. Uh, His... uh, uh, insights into people are so superior to our insights. His, his stories that he tells about character issues are so full of wisdom that we're going to start to learn and we're going to embrace the way Jesus sees things and the way Jesus does things. And so we experience the love, we embrace the truth, and then third, you're going to find that the whole purpose for living is to become a servant leader to enlist in the service of God. You're going to join hands with Jesus and you're going to be about what he's about in the world, about bringing the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. And so really, when you start following Jesus, it's all about loving, learning, and leading. All right? Loving, learning, and leading. Those are the three things that are going to happen to you if you begin to follow him and we are teachable. And so following Jesus, uh, we learn a lot just by observing just by watching what he does. And um, uh, the incident that we have in our focus this morning is uh, an event, a vignette, that happens in Jesus' life that you're probably very familiar with. But it's a very key text on this whole idea of servant leadership because of what Jesus does. Because of what Jesus does, okay? It's from John chapter 13 when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. You remember that story, right? John chapter 13. And uh, I want to say that um, if we're teachable, if we're teachable, there's at least four leadership influence lessons that we can learn from this vignette, this little event in Jesus' life, if we're teachable. Um, And I learned these four things from uh, Vince Tabor. Uh, Vince used to lead our counseling center. And by the way, uh, speaking about the counseling center, you know that uh, Dr. Dwayne Kellogg uh, retired. Okay, I can't stand these people who retire. (laughs) But um, he retired, and uh, he'll be moving. Uh, Next Sunday is his last Sunday with us. And uh, Dwayne and Ellen have, you know, contributed immensely uh, while they've been here with us over the last uh, nine years or so. And um, I'm happy to tell you that uh, Dwayne found his uh, replacement, And uh, the new uh, director of the Counseling Center is a man by the name of Jeff White. And um, 
looks like he'll be uh, very capable and competent, and uh, hopefully this transition will be very smooth. And um, we're looking forward to God continuing to uh, bless that ministry. Uh, much thanks to uh, Dwayne and Ellen and the years that they've uh, invested, not just in their ministry, but uh, in our church as well. And so, why don't you stand up, you guys? <laughs> stand up so the people know who you are. <laughs> Okay, so four lessons we can learn from this story of Jesus in John chapter 13 about leadership. Number one, um, if we're teachable, uh, first of all, I think we will realize that we are surrounded, okay, every day by a sea of needs. Everywhere you look, there are people who are needy. Every which way you look. If you just even watch the news... Um, you realize that we live in a broken world. And one of the consequences of living in a broken, fallen world is that people have all kinds of needs, okay, and are hurting in all kinds of different ways. And so people everywhere are needy, and so there are unlimited opportunities to serve. Now, some of us are just taken away with that, and we say, you know what, there's no way I can meet all these needs, so I'm just checking out right from the very beginning. But here's the first Thing. If you follow Jesus, you'll see that wherever Jesus went, he went with his eyes wide open. He saw people's needs. He wasn't afraid to see the needs that are all around us in our world. He saw. His eyes were open. He was alert to needs. Um, I just, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? In uh, Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter uh, 5... And uh, verse 1, look what it says, seeing the crowds. Jesus saw the multitude, he saw people where they were at. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. He saw the crowds, and he saw what they needed. On another occasion, in um, Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 6, uh, again, it says that Jesus saw the crowd, verse 34. Uh, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because here's what he saw. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like people just wandering around with no meaning, no purpose, no way to kind of care for themselves, no way to get from here to there. He saw them as sheep without somebody to lead them. He saw them. And he saw them in the condition that they were in. In Luke chapter 19 and verses 4 and 5, again, um, Jesus saw this guy Zacchaeus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus, little short guy? So he ran up a tree to uh, see Jesus coming by. It says in verse 4 that Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. He opened his eyes. He saw this guy, Zacchaeus. And you remember, he says, come on down, I'm going to your house for lunch. You know, remember? Because why? Because he saw. Jesus lived with his eyes open, right? Um, in John's gospel, in John chapter uh, 1, uh, and verse, uh, where is it here, 47, uh, Jesus saw this guy, Nathaniel, Nathan, 
you know, coming toward him. And he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I mean, how would that be for a compliment? Can you imagine meeting Jesus? You know that song we sing? Why not? I can only imagine what it's going to be like. Could you imagine meeting Jesus and having him say, ah, there's Dave, the guy in whom there's no deceit at all, no deception. And, and that's how he saw uh, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said to him, you know, how do you know me? And Jesus says, well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. Jesus observed. He was alert. He was aware of the people around him. And so I say, if you're going to follow Jesus and you're teachable, one of the first things that's going to happen is that we're going to see the way Jesus sees the world around us, and especially the people who are all around us. Jesus moved around with his eyes wide open. And so when Jesus comes to this uh, vignette or this uh, incident in John chapter 13, he sees the disciples for who they are. He knows what's going on in their lives, and he sees them for who they are, right? And, um, you know, in uh, Luke's gospel, uh, in Luke chapter 19, uh, two of these disciples had just been arguing the night before over who's the greatest, all right? So he kind of set the context for what Jesus uh, does here in Luke chapter 22 and um, verse 24. Uh, we can read about uh, what happened just uh, the night before. If I can find it. Um, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, you know, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, like the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. Servant leaderships, whole different concept from the world in which we live. Every, anybody can be a servant. <laughs> There's not a single person who can't be a servant, right? And so Jesus goes on, he says, uh, for who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? When you go for lunch this afternoon, who's greater, the person sitting at the table eating or the waiter that's waiting on you? Who's, who's the lucky person there? Who's the greatest person, right? And that's what Jesus was saying. And he says, isn't it the person who reclines at table? But I, the Son of God, am among you as one who serves. I'm among you as the waiter. A whole different concept when it comes to leadership in the kingdom of God. Um, so this is the night before we're having this argument, and Jesus comes into this last, it's the last Passover uh, that Jesus attends. In um, Matthew's gospel, he's aware, uh, right before this, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, we have Peter, and Peter's got kind of an unfiltered uh, mouth, right? And uh, so uh, Peter's thinking, thinking, Jesus is talking about following him and so forth, and in verse 27, Peter uh, says, you know, Lord, you know, we've left everything to follow you. I mean, we dropped our nets, left our boats. We've been traipsing around, you know, Israel, uh, following you and so forth. What's in it for us? Peter, unfiltered. He's thinking, right? You know what? We've left everything. What's in it for us? And um, 
Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, in the new world, if you're going to follow Jesus, all of a sudden the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom, is going to come and influence how we deal with this world. And so Jesus says, well, in the new world, in the world to come, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first today will be last in that day. So when Jesus comes to this last Passover meal that he's looking forward, the Bible says, to sharing with his disciples, he sees them where they're at. He sees the needs that are on their minds and on their hearts. And he's aware of what, what's going on. And, and uh, Jesus, you know, is about to leave the world, and he knows that the key to leadership in the future of his whole movement is servanthood. The essence of... Uh, the essence of leadership in the kingdom of God is service, not status. And he's looking at these guys and he's saying, my goodness, they're not there yet, right? And so he notices they all have dirty feet. Now, in those days, usually a servant would wash people's feet when they entered a house. And it was usually the lowest servant. And uh, either none of the disciples was willing to do that, or they sort of close their eyes to a very obvious need, as opposed to Jesus, who's always moving around with his eyes wide open, uh, because the disciples are maybe thinking, you know what, whoever does that job is the least, not the greatest, right? And so they're thinking in the world's terms. And so, of course, you know the story, Jesus assumes the servant role. And uh, we read in verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 13, uh, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he comes to Peter and unfiltered mouth of Peter, you know, goes off and, and so forth. But Jesus sets the example. He becomes the servant. Jesus lived with his eyes wide open. He saw the needs, both physical and spiritual, of people. And if we follow Jesus and if we are teachable, one of the things that will happen to us is that he'll open our eyes. And we'll see people uh, in their needs. We'll see the needs of others. And Jesus takes advantage of this very basic need, washing feet, to challenge, I think, what is a deep-seated attitude um, that... Um, was believed by these disciples and keeping them from realizing their potential as servant leaders in the kingdom of God. And so our eyes become open to the needs of the people all around us. But Jesus didn't just go around with his eyes open. Uh, he also lived with his heart open. He didn't just see the needs, but he allowed the needs to touch his heart. He allowed himself to care about the needs and about the people that he saw. If you notice in verse 1 of chapter 13, this, right before this whole incident, uh, John writes and he says, you know, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world uh, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them 
to the end. Jesus didn't just go around with his eyes open, but he went around with his heart open to love people. And aren't we glad uh, that he has chosen to love? And so over and over we read about Jesus um, having compassion uh, on people. In uh, Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 1, and uh, verse 40 and 41, uh, Mark makes this comment. Um, Jesus uh, encounters a leper, right? Uh, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you could make me clean. Look at this. Moved with pity. Moved by the sight of this leper. Jesus lived with his heart open, willing, see, to be moved. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left and, and so on. In uh, Luke's gospel, again, in Luke chapter 7, uh, again, Jesus, you can see, he sees, but then it goes immediately to his heart and it, it touches him. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 12, uh, as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man uh, who had died was being carried out of town. And uh, his, um, it says his wife was a widow. And uh, this was the son, right? Uh, as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. A grieving mom with no support. And Jesus sees her, and immediately it goes right to his heart. It goes from his eyes to his heart. He has compassion. And, uh, you know, he brings this young man back to life. But when we follow Jesus uh, and we're teachable... I think we don't only see needs, but we allow ourselves to care, to be moved by what we see. Uh, you might remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. You remember the Good Samaritan was a story uh, uh, that um, some guy got beat up pretty bad. The Bible says he was left half dead, you know, and, um, you know, the priest comes by and the Bible actually says um, that the priest saw him, but moved to the other side of the road. You ever do that? I have. I mean, you're better than me because nobody said, yeah, I have. But I have. I you know, see somebody coming and there's some issue or whatever, and it's just like, you know, where, how can I get over to the other side of the road so they don't notice me? And that's what the priest did. And then the Levite, you know, another religious person uh, in the Jewish system, also same thing, says that he saw the guy beat up and so forth, but eh, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to have my heart open enough to get involved. I don't know what might be involved, and it might cost me some time, and it might cost me some money, and I might be inconvenienced, and you know, my own schedule might get disrupted, and so forth, and so I'm going to just steal it, go to the other side of the town. And then the Samaritan, of course, uh, is a person that's kind of half Jewish and half Gentile, whom the Jews all looked down on. Nobody had anything good to say about the Samaritans. And the Samaritan, in Jesus' story, comes along, sees the guy, goes over there, bandages him up, you know, puts him uh, someplace where he can be cared for, offers to pay uh, for uh, housing him, and, and so forth. In Luke chapter 10, verse 30, you know this story as well. 
Um, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And uh, when he saw him, he had compassion. His heart was moved by what he saw. And um, I think this is uh, interesting because this whole story, you know, starts with a lawyer asking Jesus a question. He says, you know, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Basically, how can I be right with God and, you know, spend my eternity in heaven instead of hell? And uh, Jesus says, well, you know what the law says, you know, love God for all your worth and then love the next guy as you love yourself. And the lawyer, thinking he's kind of smart, says to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And he hides behind that. You ever hide behind that? I mean, there's so many needs, right? And I just say, who's my neighbor? I can't be a neighbor to all these people and so forth. And Jesus tells this story. And by the end of the story, Jesus flips that question around and asks, asks it in an entirely different way and basically says, whose neighbor are you? You don't have to be a neighbor to everybody, but whose neighbor are you? It's not who's my neighbor, it's whose neighbor are you? And Jesus, you know, is kind of indicating that God brings people in and out of our lives, surrounds us with needy people, and uh, equips us so that we too can be you know, like the good Samaritan and not be afraid to get involved with the resources that God has entrusted to us. And so when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, his motive is love and compassion. He realizes where these guys are at. He realizes he's going to the cross tomorrow and he's leaving and the whole uh, mission of Jesus is going to be entrusted to these guys. And this is where they're at. And he still loves them enough to... uh, be an example to them and to show them. Um, he's been with these guys for like three years now. I mean, if it was me, I'd try to put myself in this situation. I'd be like, you know, what's wrong with you knuckleheads? I'm going to the cross tomorrow. And you can't be bothered to lift a finger to help each other? You can't even be bothered to wash each other's feet? What's wrong with you guys? I mean, that would be kind of what I would be thinking about doing, right? Um, But that's not Jesus. He's patient. He's compassionate. Why? Because that's what love does. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love serves, you know? And that's what Jesus does because he loves them. I think we, in the end, only serve people to the degree that we love them. We only serve people to the degree that we really love them to the degree that our hearts are open. And I get it, right? I mean, we've all tried this and tried to serve and we've gotten our hearts broken, you know, we've gotten stung and all of that kind of stuff. But you know what? It's just time to let Jesus heal that up and move on and stop using the past as an excuse for not living in the present. We only have so much time left before we're out of here. And, um, you know, uh, Jesus moved around with his eyes open and his heart open And then third, I want to suggest that when uh, we're teachable and we really do follow Jesus, we can't help but notice that Jesus lived with his hands wide open. He wasn't afraid. We we would say, you know what? He got down and dirty. (laughs) You know, he gets the basin, he gets the soap, he gets the towel, and he just does what needs to be done. It doesn't matter to him that he's the son of God. But he sees the need 
And he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He doesn't just see and then feel, but he acts. He does what needs to be done. Uh, that uh, Chapter 13, again, verse 4 and 5. Uh, he gets up from supper. He lays aside his garments, and he takes a towel and um, wraps it around his waist, pours water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had uh, wrapped around him. He just gets down and dirty. He's not afraid to do that. Um, and I think, you know, this is what happens. Um, again, there's all kinds of examples here. In uh, Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus meets a blind man. You probably remember this incident as well. And uh, in verses uh, 35, uh, we can read about this. Um, he meets this uh, blind man. And um, what did I say? Luke 18. Luke 18, he meets a blind man. And... Um, What did I say? 35. Yeah. It's not that I can't remember. It's that I can't see the little numbers. <laughs> Here it is. So as he drew near Jericho, a blind man uh, was sitting by the road begging. And he heard a crowd going by, and he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him, shut up. The opposite of Jesus. Jesus goes around with his eyes open, his heart open, his hands open, and his disciples are like, you know, get this guy out of here. He's annoying. He's an inconvenience. He's disrupting the crowd. You know, and that happens on a lot of occasions, right, uh, as you think about the Gospels. Uh, so they rebuke him, tell him to be quiet. But he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stops, and he commands the guy to be brought over to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked this question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, just think about that question. This is the son of God. What do you want me to do for you? Could you imagine if every husband in this room this morning would go home tonight and say to their wife, what would you like me to do for you? Why is that funny? <laughs> Can you imagine if every wife would go home and say to their husband, what would you like me to do for you? Can you imagine if kids would go home tonight and they would say to their parents, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Imagine a friend coming to you and say, hey, is there anything I can do for you? I'm guilty of this. I'm usually like, hey, this is what you could do for me. This is what you could do. That's the opposite question. But Jesus, the Son of God, goes around with his hands wide open, saying, you know, what can I do for you? Is there anything I can do for you? He says to this blind guy, what a great question that really is. He's not afraid to transform his compassion into action. And uh, it's our heart engaging our will. It's living with our hands wide open. If we're teachable, our eyes will be opened, our hearts will be opened, our hands will be opened... But then one last comment, um, Jesus also lived with his mouth wide open. He wasn't afraid to speak the message that he came from heaven to bring. And so in John chapter 13, Jesus goes around, he washes all the disciples' feet, and then he sits down. And uh, in verse 12, it says, he washed uh, their feet, put on his outer garments, resumed his place, and he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? 
to you? Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me the teacher and the Lord, and you're right. That's who I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. And Jesus teaches this lesson, right? Uh, If I then, your Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me around. Your eyes will be opened. Your hearts will be opened. Your hands will be opened. And your mouth will be opened. If you follow Jesus around and you become teachable so that he can say what he wants to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. It's not enough to know. It's not enough for us to be here this morning and say, you know what, I agree with this. Amazing, right, that we would agree with what God says. Big deal. If you know these things and you want your life to be blessed, you have to do them. You have to do them. And that's what comes from following Jesus around. Knowing is not enough. Just agreeing with God doesn't really uh, do much. Jesus came with a message, and it's a message of good news. It's a message that's filled with the wonderful words of life. And he entrusted that message to us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He made us ambassadors of the kingdom of God to the kingdom of this world. Follow me around and allow yourself to become servant leaders. It's a message of hope and encouragement and forgiveness, a message of freedom, a message of life. Jesus says, you know, Matthew 28, right? All authority has been given unto me. Go, go into the world and make disciples, teaching people. Sharing what you know. Take what I've taught you and teach the next person. Go around with your mouth wide open. And so real change starts in our life when we're teachable. I think there's kind of a secret uh, that's hidden in the Bible that we talk about a lot, but I still think a lot of us miss this. In Romans chapter 12, Paul lays out all this theology, and he gets to chapter 12 to make the application of uh, the truth about God. And uh, in Romans 12, 2, he says, look, don't be conformed to this world. You're a Christian. You've been called out of the world. You've been uh, initiated into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is now among us. It's in you. So don't be conformed. Don't be like everybody else. Don't think of leadership like everybody else. Uh, Don't be conformed to the world the way the world thinks, but be transformed. Okay, how? By the renewing of your mind. You ever stop and just think about it? If you really want to change your life, how does it start? I'm going to tell you, it starts by being teachable. It starts by the renewing of how you think. It starts by being teachable, by the renewing of our minds. It starts in our minds. Um, It starts with a change in the way we think or the way we believe. That's what changes us. It's not more commitment. And I've been guilty of preaching sermons like, come on, gang, get committed. Get rededicated. Sign on the bottom line. Let's go. And then I come to this passage and I think, you know what? None of that's going to work in changing a person's life 
until the way they think has been transformed by the way Jesus thinks, until we're willing to be teachable by the renewing of our mind, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. If we don't cooperate with the Holy Spirit and become teachable, then we don't change. Um, if you think about it, the way that I think or the way that I believe determines all my behavior. There's not a thing that you do as a human being that's not tied to some belief, some reason for why you do it. Now, it takes a little bit of work, but you try to ask yourself, you know, why did I just do that? What do I believe that led me to actually do what I did? And you'll never change what we do on the surface, our behavior, until we change our belief, our thinking. And in order to do that, we need to be uh, teachable. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because behind everything we do, there is some kind of belief. And, uh, you know, we, we, I think we hear what God says. We come to church, and we hear all this, and we say, yeah, I agree with that. But you know what? We edit it. We edit it according to what we think. And uh, before it ever gets to a place where it can make a difference in our life, we've got it kind of edited to fit what, what we already uh, think and, and already believe instead of being teachable. You know, like this morning, you know, if, if it's really true that the road to servant leadership comes through having our eyes more open, if you say, well, I agree with that, uh, there's something going off inside of you at the same time that says, you know, I, I'm already well aware of everything that's going on. Isn't there? Or you're saying to yourself, you know, uh, I, you know, if, if the road to being a servant leader comes through having your heart wide open, you know what? I, I tried that and I got burned and it was so painful and I just decided I am never going to be vulnerable again. I am not going to allow myself to care because I got really toasted and now I'm protecting myself. And so my heart might be open, but it's only about that much. It's not going to be wide open like Jesus, where wherever he went, he was willing to get involved. I'm not going to live like that. Sorry. And so you can agree with all of this, but never give it space enough to take root to where your life is actually changed. True? Or how about, you know, oh, if the road to servant leadership is through having my hands more wide open and being willing to get down and dirty and do what needs to be done. Well, you know, I'm already pretty busy. And just the thought of, you know, having to cut down on my TV time in order to get involved in helping somebody else to demonstrate the love of God to them, I just, you know, I edit it out. I agree with it. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to go out the door, Dave, and, and say, you're wrong. I'm just not going to do it either. Because we edit we're not teachable, right? The opposite of editing out on the basis of what we already think. When we edit on the basis of what we think, we're basically saying to God, I already know everything. And I'm going to evaluate what you say against what I know. Rather than being teachable and sitting at the master's feet and saying, please, show me how I could be a more effective servant leader. Truth be known, I don't really want to know. Uh, how about this last one about your mouth being more open? Right? We say, oh, wow, Jesus, as the ultimate servant leader, opened his mouth 
because he came from heaven with a message. And he was willing to share that message. And now he's entrusted that message to you and me. And we have the privilege of going around and telling people, boy, do I have good news for you. All your garbage is forgiven. This God who made you, loves you, has a place for you in heaven. Oh, I can't wait to just tell you. But see, we edit that out and we say, well, you know, we're like Moses, right? We're like, I, I can't speak. I, I can't, I, you know, I'm afraid to get engaged in an argument with somebody about the kingdom of God because I feel like I'd be, you know, shortchanged and I'd look stupid or whatever we think. But we edit out, we're not teachable for God to come and to actually change us. Um, if you say things like this to yourself, if you say, you know, um, uh, uh, I know I should change, but, well, you just tell yourself, you're, just, you're not teachable. You really don't want to hear. You really don't want to be transformed by the renewing of how you think. You don't want God's worldview. If you say uh, things to yourself like, you know, I should forgive, but I know I should forgive that person more. Like Jesus with his disciples, right? Like me. I'm, it's like, I've been with you guys for three years, you knuckleheads. You still don't get it. The simplest thing. Wash each other's feet. What's the big deal? What's wrong with you? But Jesus has patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know? Uh, if we say things like, you know, I, I really shouldn't watch this movie. But then we make some rationalization about it. Um, so I think being teachable is a two-step process. Being teachable, number one, is admitting that I'm wrong. I have to be willing to identify or allow God to identify lies that I believe, wrong thoughts, misperceptions. And uh, sometimes these are things that I've believed my whole life. I mean, my parents taught me, but my parents aren't God. And then God comes along and says, you know, your parents were wrong here. And I have to be willing to say, you know, I'm going to let go of that in order to embrace this. But the first thing that has to happen, I have to identify what's wrong. What am I believing that's not working out right in my life? What is it that God is showing me that I need to change the way I think about, that I need to renew my mind? And if we're unwilling to admit that we're sometimes wrong, we're just unteachable. You know, the world that we live in is filled with lies, especially about God. And when we say things like, well, you know, it's just the way I am. No. You don't want to change. I mean, we're talking about God getting involved in our lives and changing us, transforming us to be increasingly like Christ. And so when we say, well, you know, that's just the way I am, you don't have to stay there. Or we say things like this, I can do it myself. Or we say, uh, you know, nobody will know. And uh, we try to keep these secrets and so forth. All of that just signals an unteachable spirit. And when our, our thoughts about marriage or about money or about other people are distorted, it always comes out in our behavior. So step one in being teachable, it seems, uh, is allowing God to point out what's wrong with the way that we're thinking. And I think God does it in a lot of different ways. First of all, um, you know, God does it through the Bible. If you're willing to get and allow God to speak to you through his word, he challenges those wrong thoughts and tries to replace them with the truth, his thoughts. I think God does it through one another. When we're willing to confront one another and say what we really think and what the Spirit has put in our hearts and our minds, 
um, I think God challenges some of those wrong ways of thinking when we have brothers and sisters come to us and share their observations with us and so forth or demonstrate for us in a different way like Jesus did with washing the disciples' feet. I think he also does it by conviction of the Holy Spirit. Don't you just have times when the Holy Spirit, something just comes into your, and you just know that, you, that something's wrong here and you're thinking the wrong way and, and, and you just know about it, right? And then I think sometimes God does it in worship. There are times in worship where we sing a song or something and, you know, I can just feel like God is like convicting me about something. It's part of the joy of getting close enough to him to allow him to renew our minds. And so the first part, you know, you can't be going around saying I already know everything. You got to be willing to have God change your mind. And then the second step is we have to be teachable, uh, to be teachable is to begin to fill our minds with the truth, to allow God to substitute for the lies that we believe uh, his truth in place of that lie. And that will in turn affect our behavior as time goes forward, to replace what we used to think with what God's truth is. But again, I would share with you that you cannot embrace more truth in any area of your life without first getting rid of the error. You can't, you just can't. You can't have a cup full of mud, you know, and then decide to put some drinking water in it and drink it until you get rid of the mud. You got to make room in our thought life for the truth. And it comes by getting rid of the error that we used to believe and allowing God to take that away and replace it uh, with his truth. And that's where we get to this, you know, embracing the truth uh, in our lives. And I, I think this is why people can go to church for their whole life and never really change, never really be transformed. They, they, they come and they hear truth and they say, I agree with that, but they're not going to get rid of the error that they believe that makes room for it to actually get into their heart and into their mind so that God can actually use that truth to change our lives. And so we can come to church forever and agree with everything. But until we're willing to say, wow, that's very different than what I really think, than what I was taught, than what the world says, that's all around me and so forth, and allow those lies to be exposed. I think usually behind temptations, there's lies. Behind fears, there's lies. Behind excuses and rationalizations, there's lies that we believe. And if we aren't teachable and hold on to those false assumptions, uh, and refuse to examine what's really going on behind them, we just don't grow. And so the Bible, you know, this is a classic uh, passage in Philippians chapter 4, um, where we're encouraged. Um, I, I think if we're going to be serious about this, we have to use the Bible as more than just a devotional book. We have to kind of go to the Bible and say, what is God's counterpart to this lie that I believe? What is the specific thing that God says that destroys this lie that I've been believing for however long and that's behind my behavior and so uh, Philippians 4 8 um, puts it like this whatever's true whatever's honorable whatever's just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think about these things we have a choice what we think and what we focus on think about these things Choose to think about these things. What you've learned and heard and received uh, from me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace uh, will be with you. And so um, 
I think it involves using the Bible as more than just a devotional book, but actually looking for those specific words from God that offset the lies that are deeply rooted and seeded in our lives that keep us behaving in a way that's less than uh, being a, uh, the servant leader that God has called us to be. Uh, when we're teachable, it seems to me, there'll always be a growing edge in our lives. Be transformed, Romans 12, 2, by the renewing of your mind. You change the way you think. By the way, you know, the counseling center next door, one of the great uh, uh, motifs of what goes on there is helping people figure out what they really believe and what they're thinking that's behind how they're behaving and to challenge that with God's truth. It's a great ministry. Let me just close one last passage of scripture. Psalm 19. Uh, look at this. You know, sometimes uh, when we think about this, we think, well, I wonder if there's anything, you know, really perfect in the world, if there's anything right and so forth. The law of the Lord is perfect. There is something perfect in life, and it's God's word. There is something that's absolutely perfect. And uh, when you allow the perfect law of God to get into you, it revives your soul, your thoughts, your feelings, and your choices, right? That's what our soul is, the non-material part of us, our thoughts, our feelings, and our choices. Uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You know, is there anything certain in life? People make a joke. Well, yeah, the only thing certain in life is taxes and death. Well, I got something better than both of those things. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And you know what? When you base your life on it, it takes the simpleness of our life and makes us wise. Uh, the precepts of the Lord are right, and they rejoice the heart. Can I find any place where I can find joy? You know, am I destined to just live a miserable life, or is there joy to be had, and will it show up on my face someday? The precepts of the Lord are right, and they rejoice the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is huge reward. Therefore, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we recognize, Father, that the degree to which we're teachable really becomes the degree to which we're humbled in your presence and which we recognize, Father, that we don't know everything. And then as we humbly... Uh, live with you and follow Jesus, that if we're teachable, you will change us. We'll be transformed. We won't just be like everybody else, but that we'll be people of the kingdom, people of Jesus, people who are different, people who are making a difference in this world. You'll lead us to become servant leaders like Jesus, like Jesus is to us, our servant leader. Where would we be if he wasn't willing to serve and lead? And so, Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would take these things and bring them home into our hearts and allow us to have the freedom of your spirit to be transformed so we don't just stay the same, but that we would look forward to all that you're going to do in our lives between now and the day you call us home. For Jesus' sake, amen.